Now we're good. Okay, our passage this morning is Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have your Bible, hopefully it's open to Romans chapter 13. Thankful for even moments like that where things don't work right because it reminds us that uh, we're, we're not here to perform. We are here to uh, worship God, to listen to His Word. And uh, we're sojourners in that journey, right? We haven't arrived yet. We're never going to arrive in our performance. Things like this are, continue to happen over and over again. Uh, and we're not going to arrive before the Lord either in perfection until that day. We look forward to it, but in the midst of it, when we're on our journey as sojourners, we need the, the voice of the Lord to direct us, to guide us, to speak to us. And so no matter what kind of thing you bring into this room today, the, the voice of the Lord can speak right into that. We find that in Romans chapter 13 is where he's speaking this morning. I used to, when I was younger, when we'd go to hotels, one of the things I liked to do at the hotels was to pick up and mess with the hotel phone. I don't know why it seemed like there was more freedom with the hotel phone than the, than the phone at home, but one of the things I liked to do was to call down to the operator quickly so that I could get a wake-up call. Uh, when we would go to a fancy hotel, maybe we'd stay, uh, often we stayed at Embassy Suites in Tulsa. My dad had conferences there every year, and, and when we'd go there, I'd, I'd call and get the wake-up call, not so much because I had an event to be to, because I wanted to get up in time to go eat breakfast pretty early. All right, so that, been to that breakfast, a, a pretty solid breakfast, I was pretty excited about it as a kid, so I, like, I needed that wake-up call to, to get me going. And wake-up calls are probably a thing of the past, like if you, if you don't have, you've never been to a hotel because you stay in Airbnb and you have an iPhone, you never get the joy of, of either of these things. Uh, you're missing out. Like, maybe try it out. Go and leave your phone at home and call for the wake-up call, and they will call you at a certain time. You, you get the wake-up call because the event is coming. You don't get the wake-up call when the event is started. Like, I got the wake-up call before I wanted to go eat breakfast, not when breakfast was going to end. Like, I wanted to make sure I got there before then. And, and that's how we, we do it. We set an alarm. We get a wake-up call before the event comes up so that we are up and ready for it when it happens. And that's what Paul is doing in this text this morning. He is giving, in a sense, a divine wake-up call of sorts to Christians. He wants them to know before the, the, the end, they need to be ready. And so he calls upon his readers to wake up because of what is coming, not because it's already here, but because it is coming. And so, so here's what he says to Christians. Here's why he writes these final verses of chapter 13. That, that Christians might live or, or walk in Christ's likeness or holiness because salvation is near. This future salvation that's coming, it, it motivates sanctification. It motivates holy living. It motivates us to live in Christ's likeness. And so we could express it in, in three kind of ways as he goes through this morning. Wake up, cast off, and put on. 
And so like many, many of our days, maybe your day began this morning with an alarm bell going off, with the music of your phone waking you up. And what Paul does is, is some sort of an alarm this morning for Christians, reminding them, telling them of the time. So verse 11, he says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's time to wake up, he says. Get up. Wake up. Why? Because he says salvation is nearer. Salvation, the salvation from the wrath of God. That's how Paul speaks of it in the, the book of Romans. We, we are those who were in chapter 1, verse 18, squarely under the wrath of God because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness that dwells within our hearts, deserving of God's judgment, and we need salvation from God, from the wrath of God for our sin that we deserve. We need salvation from that. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, that salvation is available. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. We need to be saved from something. And he says, it's available in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. There's salvation from the wrath of God, from our sin, from our certain judgment and death that we deserve I believe in Jesus Christ. Or in the gospel, the righteousness, how we can have right standing with God, is made known. It's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. By faith in Jesus, one is saved. That's what he said in chapter 10 as well. Chapter 10, verse 10. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And notice the tense on those, right? They justified, saved. But salvation is not just a past thing. That you, you were saved and now something different is true. You, you are saved. You, you've been saved from the wrath of God. You've been saved from sin and from death. But that's not just a past, past work only. That would be to miss the present work of salvation. This new reality that's being worked out through our union with Christ by faith in Him in this present, everyday reality of which we live. He, he speaks of this in, in chapter 6. Listen to how he speaks of kind of a present salvation. He says, We were buried, therefore with Him by baptism and death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk presently every day in newness of life. Or in verse 6, he says, our old self was crucified that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. You, you are saved and being saved right now to walk in that newness of life. Or verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive. Right now, alive. Being saved. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or who could forget the great truths of chapter 8 verse 4. He says that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk right now. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. Verse 11, he says, or verse 6, he says, we, we don't set our minds on the things of the flesh. We're being saved. We set our mind on the spirit that, that is life and peace. The, the mind that's set on the spirit is, is host, or set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. But the mind that's set on the spirit doesn't. It does submit to God's law. It is 
being changed and transformed and saved. Verse 10 of chapter 8, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, you are being saved, right? The Spirit is life because of righteousness. You've been given the Spirit of God, so walk in this newness of life. And that life that's in the Spirit that you now have if you've trusted in Jesus is the deposit and the guarantee of future salvation. And so we think of salvation as, as something that is past, that is present, and that is future. You are saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your, mon- your mortal bodies through Spirit who dwells in you. He, he will do this. You will be saved. Or verse 17, we are heirs with Christ. There's something to come. Verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time. Present time. Think about that. That's the time that it is now that Paul talks about in chapter 13. This is the time. This time is a time that's full of sufferings. But those Things, those sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory, the future salvation that's to be revealed to us. Or verse 23, that we groan inwardly because we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the final and full redemption of our bodies where salvation future is full reality. And for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but we, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 30, he says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's glory to come. Those who have trusted in Jesus are those who have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved one day. And that is the good news from first to last for us. That's good news for us in the midst of time that's only going in one direction, right? Like the the wave of time is moving in one direction. Uh, There's an old hymn that says the sands of time are sinking. You can think about just an hourglass with sand just dropping in. And it is moving and it just keeps falling and falling and falling. Or uh, I listened to this song when I was a kid, Tracy Lawrence. I don't know how popular he is, but it's just music I swam in when I was a kid. Time marches on, right? That's what he said in this song. I couldn't get it out of my head this week. Time marches on. Each day, that's what's happening. We're moving closer. We're edging closer to the end. And and for Christians, those who are in Christ, that is not something to be pushed away, but it's something to be embraced. We Each day is death is nearer, or, or the Lord's return is nearer, we, we can move forward with great hope and peace and confidence because we're, we're not pushing that away. We're, we're actually wanting it to come. We're embracing it. it. And we think about the sands of time sinking or time marching on. We're not saying that that is only a, a matter of grief and, and despair. No, that is a matter of joy. Why? Because in Christ, when we say that the time is marching on, the sands of time are sinking and that the day is drawing near, in Christ that means our final and full salvation is near. So each day, Christian, moves you closer to that salvation. You, you are being saved, but you're, you're going to be saved as well. I, I read of Martin Lloyd-Jones's final days on this earth, and he was suffering uh, tremendously and he, he had cancer and his doctor would come and give him antibiotics and, and it just made him feel bad. Like he already didn't feel good but, but it just kind of it made him feel even worse. And so there was a, a time towards the end of his days where the doctor came in and he just shook his head like not, not the antibiotics today, not doing it today. 
And, and the doctor said to him in the midst of this, he said, I want to make you comfortable. It grieves me to see you sitting here, and this was quoting a hymn, weary and worn and sad. And those words were too much for Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he didn't speak much at the time, but he said two words to this doctor twice. He said, not sad, not sad. Why in the world would a, a dying man with cancer, uh, sh you say no to the antibiotics and then say, uh, I might be weary and worn, but I am not sad. Why would he say that? Well, in his final days, one of the last uh, known verses that was read to him was in 2 Corinthians chapter 14, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 16. It says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And his daughter pointed to that verse and said, has that been your experience? And, and without a word, because again, towards the end, he couldn't speak much. He just said, mm-hmm. And so when he says to this doctor, like, I don't want you to be here weary and worn and sad, he says, I'm not sad. What's he doing? He's looking to the things that are unseen. He knows that there's something eternal stored up for him. And so sure of that, he can be in the midst of his suffering and, and cancer and say, not sad. Not sad. It's the same with Paul, right? He says something that we can understand. To me, to live is Christ. All right, we get that, right? We, we no longer live. Christ lives in us. But then he says something really strange. He said, but to die is gain. That is so strange for our culture, where we try to push off death as far as we can and get it away from us as quickly as we can. He says, to die is gain. Now, that's a strange way of talking. Why did he say that? Because Paul knew what Martin Lloyd-Jones came to know as well. He knew what awaited him. He knew that to die was truly gain because there was future salvation for him. He knew what awaited and he wasn't sad about it and said he was eager for it, expectant of it. He wanted it to come. And church in Christ, if you trust in him, you can know the same. You, you need to know the good news, not just of salvation past. Christ came and if you trust in him, he has saved you and you are being saved. You need to know salvation present, but you need to know salvation future. You will be saved. Time in our culture can be something that just adds pressure to life. Doesn't it? like what time is it? We're constantly like we're scheduled by this clock. We're slaves to the clock. It can be something that adds a lot of worry and stress. And Paul says, Christian, you know the time, and it's not meant to be a worry. It's meant to be an encouragement to stir up Christian to right living. You know the time. Your, your salvation that's in the future, that's even nearer than before. Each day, each breath, you move closer to that salvation. That is not something to be pushed away. That's something to embrace. And I love how Paul says it. Notice the faithful simplicity with which Paul describes this. Salvation is nearer. He doesn't make an argument for it. He doesn't give an explanation. He doesn't go into great detail. The, the faithful simplicity, he's not trying to sure us up, but that simplicity should sure us up. He just says, like, it is near. That is what is true. And if you have believed in Jesus, you can take God at his word here. You need to hear and receive your future salvation is nearing. 
That the one who saved you and is saving you is not going to let you down in the end. And he's not going to forsake you in the present so that while you're inwardly, like while you're outwardly wasting away, you inwardly can be renewed day by day until those things that are unseen become seen. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to leave you on the day of salvation. Each day might bring some more wrinkles, a sore back, more groaning, but each day brings us nearer to our salvation. History for you, Christian, is arcing in a clear and final and full destination, so you need to be shored up by that salvation. And because that is true, here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to say, that should move us now. It should make us live differently now. He says, you know the time. You know the time, the time of our present salvation, a time of, of chapter 8 where there's present sufferings and groaning, but you know the time that that present salvation is moving in a direction toward your future salvation, and because you know that time, the hour has come for you to wake up. Wake up, that's a call for eagerness, a call for readiness. It, it's similar to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12 he says, you got to be ready. Verse 35, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Here's what he says to them. And you need to be ready. You need to be alert. Stay dressed. Wait. Be found awake when he comes. This is a needed wake-up call. And apparently Paul thought the same thing. So he has to say, hey, you know the time. Wake up. Sleep is over now. It's time for you to wake up. I think it's needed because he knows the temptations of this present age. He knows how quickly it can lull us to sleep. In chapter 12, he said, don't be conformed to this present age, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Because Paul knew, right? He knows you're swimming in something. There's, there's water that you're swimming in. How's the water, right? And he knows they're swimming in something and they have a present age that is impacting them, forming them, shaping them, that they're in all the time. Some of it they're unaware of, some of it they are. And he wants them to become more and more alert to it, ready to be able to navigate it faithfully. He knows they're swimming in this present age. The, the world and the enemy would form us and have a people asleep to the realities of salvation, past, present, and future. One author has dubbed our current time as a secular age, characterized by what he would call a loss of transcendence, a, a loss of any sort of thought of anything beyond the here and now. So there would be no meaning or significance found beyond this life. All the meaning and significance that you would need can be found here and now, in your own self or in this world in some capacity. And so, that's where you'd start looking. And you wouldn't even consider, like you kind of box out anything that would be beyond because, again, this is all there is. And people in this age are, are characterized, if they're living as, with this loss of transcendence, they're, they're characterized by this willingness to gain the world and lose their soul. Because what is there to lose anyway? And all beyond this world is boxed out, and all that's in this world is boxed in. And it makes us people who live for what's here and now only, and for ourselves only, with no account for what's going to come after this world, if there is such a thing. And this is some of the present age water, church, that we're swimming in. 
And what this present age water does is it inserts doubt into our thoughts of some sort of transcendence, of of thoughts of things beyond, and it leads us to dozing off, to being sleepy. We say salvation is nearer, but it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it, does it? You look around, it doesn't look like it, so why not just stay asleep a little bit longer? Your life, it might feel mundane. Things may feel out in the world not so antagonistic, but maybe, maybe more neutral. So it may not look like salvation all, matters all that much. It's like we're being stirred in bed, and, and as we're stirred in bed, we, without checking the clock, without checking the actual time, we, we kind of take a peek at the, the light that's shining into the room, and ah, it's pretty dark, the sun must not be out, without taking account for, are the curtains closed? Are the blinds also closed? Is it a cloudy day? Have you actually checked the time? It's just like, nope, it looks dark enough. We'll go back to sleep. And Paul says, don't do that anymore. Paul knows that Christians in this present age, in these waters, in this sleepy age, are susceptible to conformity to this present age, are susceptible to sleepiness in this age. And so he says, wake up. You, you know the time. Be alert and be ready. He goes on to say in verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Stop sleeping. It may not look like there's much light in the room, but did you open the blinds? Did Did you pull back the curtains? Have you actually checked the time and thought maybe there's a cloud in the sky, but we still can know the time? This is not a time for drowsiness or sleeping. It's not a time for kind of moving out throughout your day. It's sleepwalking. It's a time for being awake. He wants them to shake their complacency, their lethargy, their apathy, to wake up with alertness and readiness to to do the things that he's been calling to do in chapter 12, right? To, To give your life fully to God, be all in with him, living fully for him. That's a life that also belongs to others and living for their sake, loving them and pouring your life and your gifts out for their sake and having them do the same to you. It's a life of submitting to to different places, right? To others and to governing authorities. It's a life where we're to owe no one anything except to love. He wants them to wake up to those realities because what the present age will do is it will insert doubts of transcendence. It will lull to sleep. It may not feel like or look like or seem like salvation is any nearer than when you first believed. And so it wants you to go back to sleep. So why in the world would you do what he's called you to do in chapter 12 and 13? But Paul here calls Christians to check the clock. What's God's time reading here? Check God's clock. And here's what God's clock is telling us. It's telling us the truth. And the truth is salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So get up. Wake up. Do you know the time on God's clock? He says it's nearer. We're only moving in one direction. One day it'll be here. And so wake up. He doesn't give us a timeline for that. But every breath we take, we can know that it's closer. So wake up, be ready, be alert. How much more so? Paul said this in, you know, 2,000 years ago or so. Now we're looking at it like, it's definitely closer now. It's got to be. So wake up. And this wake up call is a call to be alert, but it's a call to action. Verse 12, he says, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. He's speaking of spiritual realities, of night and day. Night, as we look through the context, clearly associated with this present evil age under the reign of sin and death. But in Christ Jesus, there's a new reality. That is a reign that has ended. Like the reign of sin and death is different now. In Christ, sin and death reigned. 
no longer reigns. In him is justification through his propitiating death, where the wrath of God that we deserve was turned aside through Jesus' sacrifice, so sin's penalty is paid. And he has not only paid the penalty for sin, he has set us free from under the reign of sin and death, as sin's power has been broken. Now we can walk in newness of life, initiated through this union that we have with Christ Jesus. And future salvation nears every single hour. And so the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they signal that the night is far gone and that the day is at hand. He's spoken of this day before. In chapter 2, verse 5, here's the, a, a little bit of detail about the day. He says, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or in verse 16 of chapter 2, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the day that he speaks about here. This is a day that will be a day of wrath and judgment. But in Christ Jesus, this is the day that our justification that's declared over us right now will receive its final and full declaration over us then. Where our right standing that's been declared to us now will be right standing that we live in fruit of then. In Christ, we get the not guilty charge now, but then the gavel will fall and it will declare us in Christ not guilty. So that right now we have peace with God and we're moving toward peace forever with God. Right now we're under no condemnation, but we're moving from a place of no condemnation to final and full salvation. And so the night is far gone, the day is hand. So what do we do then, Paul? Let us cast off, verse 12, he says, the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Too often in conversations about this day and about the end and about eschatology, too often those conversations, they center on predictions or debates and timelines. And in scripture, what you see over and over and over again, when we talk about that day, when we talk about the end, it's not about timelines and dates and debates. What it is, is about encouraging Christians to live holy lives right now. Often in the scripture, there's these end times things spoken about so that we might motivate right living right now. So the gospels, I could go through the gospels. There's so many examples of this. One of them is we read in Luke 12. The gospels are saying, stay awake. The end is coming. And what does he say? Here's not the timeline. Here, stay awake. Be ready. Be dressed. Or we could look at Paul. He does this over and over again as he does here. Philippians chapter 1. He says in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He wants right living now in light of that day. Or in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing right now that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. All right, well, that's Paul. What about the rest of the New Testament? Like, let's go to the book of Hebrews. We could have done Paul a hundred times. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36 you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Now, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not as those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's saying, I need you to endure right now in light of that coming day. What about James? James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see how the present is being informed by the future? Or in 2 Peter, well, that's Paul and Hebrews, and now what about... Uh, and James, and what about Peter? Well, Peter agrees. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Don't fall asleep thinking that it's going to be a long way off. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that you should all reach Repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what does he say? Right? Pay attention now. Repent now because of what's coming. Or in 1 John, we'll get John in there to make sure he agrees. Verse 28 and 29 of 1 John chapter 2. Little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shriek from him in shame at his coming. And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Or in chapter 3, verse 3, it says, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What about Jude? Jude, verse 18. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. In verse 20 says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. That's what you're to be doing. We could look at Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, what does Jesus do to these churches? He says, I'm coming. Repent. Be ready. Or in chapter 22, as John ends the, the revealing in chapter 22, verse 7, it says, behold, I'm coming soon. So blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Because he's coming soon, what do you do now? Keep these words. You, you obey, obey them. You, you walk them out. Like the, the day to come is a day of, of judgment and wrath, but it's also in Christ a day of glory and salvation. And because that salvation and, and glory to come is to come, right now we live differently. This day to come motivates us to obedience. It motivates alertness and readiness and obedience before the Lord. We, we could say it this way, if you want to get like, technical with the terms, eschatology should drive our ethics. What we think about the end is going to uh, motivate how we live in the here and now. Uh, believers, we can consider it this way. We could, we could look on our lives and say we live between the day of D-Day, think of D-Day in World War II, and, and, and Victory Day, V-Day. The, the allies, as they, as they take on D-Day invasion, they didn't know that that invasion was the start of the victory, the start of the win for the Allied cause. They didn't know how far they were from victory. It turns out that, man, you bring America into the fight, we're, we're closer, right? A year or so out from there, 
Uh, here we have victory is coming. When we landed, they didn't know it. We can look back and say it now because we have history written for us. We can say, hey, when they landed, that was the beginning of the end. The tide was getting ready to be turned. And a year later, things would be drastically different. And Christian, we can look at our lives and, and we can say we live between D-Day and, and V-Day. Now, now, they couldn't have known that when they landed, but we get the perspective of being able to, we know when the victory is, right? And he doesn't give us the time and the dates, although we want it. He just says it's nearer. And as we read and keep going, it's nearer and nearer each and every time. So we get that perspective. We have Victory Day written for us and displayed for us in the resurrected Christ. And so we live in between the, the D-Day invasion and the victory that is final and full for us. And, and right now, we're, we don't know where we're at in the middle of this, but the battle is raging on and it will be over soon. Victory Day is already on the horizon. And so what does he want us to do in light of that? He, he wants us to fight, to battle with confidence knowing that salvation is coming. That's the only outcome for you, Christian. It's only victory. One author says it this way, that the hope of the final victory is so much the more vivid because of the unshakably firm conviction that the battle that decides the victory has already taken place. And in light of that battle that has already taken place, in light of the victory that's in front of us and on the horizon, Paul begins by saying, you need to start living now differently. And he starts with how it, what it shouldn't be. You, know, you see that in verse 12 and in verse 13? The night's far gone, the day is at hand, so cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Cast off and put on. In light of that victory, he says, and has no problem saying, stop some things. Cast off some things. And what he calls them is works of darkness. Now, works of darkness, he, he describes similar things in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. All right, that, that brings a little aspect to what he's saying. The works of darkness are, are works that are in somewhat uh, of some sense are hidden. They're, they're concealed. They're, they're secret. They're described as works of darkness because that's true. They, they have some sort of guise of hiddenness or secrecy. And there's an appeal to that. In Proverbs chapter 7, Proverbs is picturing a, a man who's walking through the roads. And it says in verse 9 that in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, he, he's going to meet this woman who's going to lead him down to his destruction. Or in John chapter 3, Jesus says that he's the one who's the light who's come in and shone in the darkness. And the darkness hated the light because their works were evil. They thought they were hidden and the light came and they, they hated it. Because all of a sudden, in some ways, they were exposed. Darkness and secrecy, this concealment, it offers a sense of security. Though we know through the scripture that that's a false sense of security because God sees and knows all things. But, but in our worldly minds, in our fleshly minds, we think that, that darkness gives us a sense of concealment. That this can be hidden somehow and some way. And there's some a powerful appeal to, to sin under the darkness. That I can do what I really want to do and I can get away with it. There's power in that kind of temptation. And in darkness, under the guise of it being hidden, all manner of works of darkness are unleashed. And he gives us some here in verse 13. 
He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in here some of these works of darkness, orgies and drunkenness, he gives us three pairs, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The, the first pair, uh, the NLT translates that first word, wild parties. That, that gets the sense of it, right? Wild parties and revelry and drunkenness. Uh, the motto of this first pair might be, well, you only live once. Live it up. Go do what you want to do. The, the second pair he gives here, sexual immorality and sensuality. Right? He, he gets at sexual sins. And, and the motto for this second pair might be, do what feels good to you. And the third pair that he gives, he says, don't be walking in quarreling and jealousy. Oh man, that gets right at not just outward actions, but the inward heart that is wanting some things that we're not to want. That is sinful. Inwardly, there's some darkness. The third pair might be, motto might be, you get yours. And these three pairs of Sins of works of darkness are pairs of self-indulgence. These are sins of pleasure-seeking. And these, he says, are sins that characterize those who live in darkness. And just by him saying this to these Roman Christians, reminds us, he's got a broad audience in front of him, but he is saying, of these sins, these are not just sins on the fringes of society. These are not just for those, those you know, outlying issues of the people that he's writing to. Like, these are square in their view. That's why he writes of them in kind of a general way. These are not rare. These are things he needs to tell them to cast off and stop because they're known among them. These are generally accepted things in their culture. And so the covering of darkness is sufficient for these people to say, we can walk in all these kinds of things and it'd be okay. That darkness is sufficient for all kinds of people, for all kinds of sins. And he knows that, and that's why he has to say, cast off these works of darkness. It's implied in that, that that some of the people that he writes to were involved in some of those things, might be still ensnared and entangled in some of the things, so he has to say, cast them off. He tells Christians, no longer with those things. You're moving forward. And here's what Paul does when he says, cast these things off. He helps with that actual casting off in a few ways. He he names these sins for what they are. Works of darkness. Too often, we have a vocabulary for works of darkness that kind of dances around the reality that these things that he writes here are actual sins before a holy God. We have a whole vocabulary built up in our church culture to kind of help push away, diminish, or maybe even justify some of these kinds of things. So are you naming your works rightly? Are you calling sin, sin? Or are you working with a vocabulary that excuses or diminishes that sin? This is just a struggle. Well, it might be a struggle, but it is also sin if it's against the Holy God. Amen. It might be a habit of your life, but it also might be sin and a work of darkness. So don't build up a vocabulary that would excuse or diminish sin. Call sin what it is. Call it sin. Paul does that here. He doesn't dance around the truth. He names these sins for what they are. They are works of darkness. But he helps not only by naming these works for what they are, but he names where they dwell and thrive. In the darkness. Sin is like mold. It thrives in the darkness. That's where it wants to grow 
and get bigger. And so ask yourself, are, are there parts of our lives and our works and our deeds that we wish to remain hidden? Like even as I say that, like man, what part of your life, if brought out to the light, would you cringe at? We all have that. And if we leave it there, it grows. He says this is where sin thrives and dwells in the darkness. If there are places in our lives, things in our lives that we want to remain hidden, then we need to take seriously this command to cast off the works of darkness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his great little book, Life Together, he said, sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. There will be no casting off works of darkness if they remain in the dark. They will only grow there. And if we're to cast off works of darkness, here's what we need to do that Paul kind of just helps us with by naming it and saying what to do with it, that we name them. When you get together with other Christians, name them. This is sin. And then get them out of the dark. And when you name them, not just internally, but externally, all of a sudden, you're well on your way to casting off works of darkness. This is confession and repentance. You confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. You turn away from it by owning it and saying, I don't want that anymore. I'm turning away from it. Bring the light of the gospel to bear in those places of darkness. Bring the light of salvation past to bear in those places of darkness. The light of salvation present. I'm saved from that. And I'm being saved from that. And bring salvation future to bear on that. I'm going to be saved. I have a clear destination in Christ Jesus. And because of that, I I can confess this and turn away from it. Bring the, the light of community to bear in those places of darkness. And here's what happens when you do. You can start to see the works of darkness be drained of their power. You expose mold to the light, what happens? That's the beginning of the end. You bring your sin out into the light, you name it for what it is, and the power that was there when it was concealed and hidden starts to drain away. And all of a sudden, those things that looked pretty good in the dark start to look pretty ugly in Christ Jesus. And that's the other way that Paul helps us with casting off. He tells us what to put on. So we wake up, we cast off, and, and we put on. And, and casting off and putting on uh, go together. They cannot be separated. Paul uses this all the time in his, his letters he writes. Put off and put on. Here he says cast off and put on. These are paired together. If we only uproot the weed, the weed can regrow. Other weeds can fall in and regrow. If we only cast off the clothes, right, then we're just naked and exposed. No one wants that, right? Like, don't just cast these things off. Don't just pull out the weed. Put something back in the ground. Put something back on. And here's what he tells us to put on. Verse 12, he says, put on the armor of light. Just the thought of armor that he uses that imagery reminds us that we're in the midst of a battle. That this isn't going to be easy. That this is a fight. That he has to tell him 13 chapters in to cast off works of darkness that we thought were long gone in chapter 1 are still very present as he's commanding Christians to live daily living obedience before God in chapter 13. Here they are again. Some of the same things that, that were mirrored in chapter 1. He has to tell them to cut off, cut or cast them off because there's a real battle in the life of the Christian. That yeah, we're saved and we're being saved and we will be saved. But that doesn't mean that this present reality isn't full of the presence of sin. There's a battle, and we need to have armor on for the battle. I love what what one um, wrote. He said that the true Christian is called to be a soldier. 
And he must behave as such from the day of his conversion, past salvation, to the day of his death, future salvation. He is not meant to live a life of religious ease. Right? Wake up. It's easy to stay asleep and to doze off. He says, nope, not, not living in ease. We're not living in religious ease or indolence and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven like one traveling in an easy carriage. Amen. And we don't have easy carriages anymore. Uh, easy chair? It's not the Christian life. We don't live the Christian life in the easy chair. It's a battle. We, we get up and we put armor on. The battle requires army, or armor. And Paul invites us, put it on. It's available. What is he saying here? What is, what is putting on this armor of light? Well, the context is clear. That this armor, what it looks like, is walking properly. Walking in a way that is holy. Walking like Christ. There's right behavior from right motives. That's the armor. And that right behavior and right motives is this display of our freedom in Christ Jesus because we're not under the reign of sin and death anymore. We are in Christ, united to him, free to walk in newness of life. And we have this armor. It's armor of light. And that is clearly contrasted with what? Works of darkness. And so when we have this armor of light and we have this contrasted with works of darkness, that signals to us where to begin. Right? One pastor said this, that a big part of getting ready for your fight is turning the darkest places within you over to the Holy Spirit. Pushing them out into the light. This is the darkest thing in me, and it brings it out to the light, and now we're ready to fight. So again, confession and community, this community of light, are, are part of donning this armor of light. But Paul gets even more specific. Look in verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't you love right in the middle of this battle that he gives us this great description, this great title for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't done that all the time in Romans. Why does he do it here? Just to emphasize again who is on your side, whose life you are now found in. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's the one you're putting on. You, when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saying, I'm fully identified in him and by him. Like Romans 6 kind of style, right? You're dead to sin. Well, you died with him. Because you're united to him now, you're dead. But you've raised to walk in new life because he raised as well. Amen. You have new life that you get to walk in by your union with Christ Jesus. And this new life is a life where those who have trusted in Jesus are united to him become more and more like him. Not only because we love him and we worship him and what we, we become what we worship, but he says in chapter 8, right, we're being conformed into the image of the Son. So this new life is a life of, of moving one degree to another, to the image of Christ Jesus. We're being conformed to look like our Savior. And so what we do is we sink the works of darkness really down deep into the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So those works of darkness of which we once were a part, that was implied in Paul's writing, are now sunk down deep in salvation past paid for. God's wrath propitiated. And now they're sunk into salvation present. I'm free from those things. They don't own me anymore. I'm a slave to, to God for his glory now. We sink them down deep and in his resurrection. And guess what? It may be clinging on to me more than I wish, but I have a clear and final destination. I will get there, not because of what I do, but because he has guaranteed it. And so what happens is when we put on Christ, we identify ourselves not with sin anymore, but with a Savior. He is our full identity. 
And he is the one who enables us to walk in newness of life, not for our salvation. We have that. We have it. Had it, have it, will have it. We're not walking for that. But because we have it, because we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved, we live this way. We put on Christ. I don't want us to get the idea that as we think about future salvation in this passage, that there's future salvation by works. Like past salvation is by faith, but future salvation is by works. That's not what's going on here at all. It's not as if he saved us and then he's like, okay, you take it from here. No, he saved us. He is saving us. That's his work ongoing in and through us, and he will save us one day. That's his work. But because those things are sure and true, because our future salvation is secure as Christ is risen, because we are going to be saved, because we are secure in Christ Jesus, it says, live like him right now. Our security in Christ drives our sanctification. Our eschatology drives our ethics. Our faith union with him, our security in him, means that we should be living differently right now. To put on Jesus Christ is then to not only fully identify with him, but to grow to be more and more like him. And let's ask this, what did Jesus look like? I think most in our culture today would say, well, like, well Jesus was loving. And that is true. But here's what Jesus looked like. He looked holy. When we throw out that Jesus looked loving, we kind of get this idea, well, isn't Jesus all loving? Yes, he is love in the flesh, but that didn't look like unconditional affirmation of however you want to live. He, he had a holy love. And so we think, what did Jesus look like? Yeah, he looked loving, but that was a holy loving that he was doing. He, he is loving, but yes, he was holy. And his love looked lawful. His love looked holy. It wasn't unconditional affirmation of however anyone wants to live because he's just a loving guy. He looked holy. And so... If we know what he's saying here, Paul is saying here about putting on Christ, and, and we can look at that and say, oh, well, I'm not interested in living like that, then you're not interested in Jesus. If you're not interested in holiness, you're not interested in Jesus. If you're not interested in becoming more and more like what Jesus actually looked like, then you're not following him. Because those who are in him are conformed more and more to be like him. If you're not interested in holiness, then you couldn't be following Jesus as his disciple because he was holy. So as those who are putting on Jesus, unholy things become less and less appealing, less and less desirable, and we try to put them off, though we might look more and more like our Savior. Fleshly desires, they're still present. We think about Paul in, in chapter 7. Listen to some of his descriptions. He's talking about, yeah, he knows salvation. And here he's saying, and this is becoming more of the reality of those who are in Christ. I don't do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It leaves him to a little bit of like, what am I to do with this? And so he cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me? And what does he do? He looks forward to the one who's going to save him. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he moves on to live a holy life, more and more sanctified as he walks each and every day closer and closer to that one who will finally and fully deliver him. And that's the Christian life. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and the fleshly desires are incompatible with that. And so what do you do with them? You make no provision for them. You cut off opportunity for those fleshly desires. They're still present, but you cut off every opportunity for them. You make no provision for them. You provide no thought for them. You've, you've maybe heard the image like you, you can't prevent birds from flying overhead, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your brain, right, in your head. 
Don't make a provision for them. As if here's the nest. You can land anytime you want if you just need to take a break. No, there's no break. You keep flying over. We make no provision. We make no planning. We're not planning how we're going to achieve this. We're, we're not dreaming of it. We're not giving an avenue for these things to come out because we want to be like Christ. We want to be holy. And so we make no provision. And when he says that, that's a reminder that we're in the middle of a battle because the flesh does remain. The presence of sin remains, and there's a fight, and that's part of the Christian life. So putting on Jesus is going to involve a fight. There's no passivity. There's no laziness or sloth here. We need to be actively putting on Christ. There's an implied effort here. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we look at that, and we know that, that effort in the midst of our past, present, and future salvation are not antithetical. Effort is very much a part of this Christian life. I, I love how one author said that grace is not opposed to effort. But catch this, it is opposed to earning. Paul is not saying for us to earn something here. He is saying you're going to have to fight. Make no provision. Join the fight. Jump in. What he's wanting here is grace-fueled, faith-fueled effort to make no provision for the flesh. Put on Christ. And part of that grace that fuels that effort is the grace that will be ours in the future. Put on Jesus now because one day we will put on Jesus forever. And because of that, you live differently now. Wake up. Cast off. Put on. It says all these things because salvation is nearer than when you first believe. Eternal life motivates present living. Eschatology motivates and drives ethics, how we live here and now. We can and we should walk properly now because our future salvation is secure in Christ, the one who lived, died, and rose. One author says this, the captain of our salvation, he never fails to lead his soldiers to victory. He never makes any useless movements, never errs in judgment, never commits any mistake, his eye is on all his followers, from the greatest of them even to the least. The humblest servant in his army is not forgotten. The weakest and most sickly is cared for, remembered, and kept unto salvation. The souls whom he has purchased and redeemed with his own blood are far too precious to be wasted and thrown away. No soldiers of Christ are ever lost, missing, or left dead on the battlefield. The muster roll when the last evening comes will be found precisely the same that it was in the morning. Church, you know the time. And because you know the time, let's live differently now. Let that time, let that day inform and fuel living right now for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for sleeping through war. It would be inconceivable in the middle of a battle to just think we can avoid the whole conflict by going to sleep, but that's what we do. We fall asleep and forget that we are even in a battle. We forget what your priorities are and thus ours should be and we live
secular lives as if this age is the only one that is. And we know that's not true, but it's what we see in front of us and we get distracted and we think that the greatest purpose of our lives is to make money or be popular or succeed in whatever we put our minds to on this planet or to be comfortable or to have pleasure. Uh, and all of these things are good things in and of themselves. It's We have details in our lives. We have jobs. We do make a living. We do have things we want to accomplish, God, but we we get so wrapped up in it, we forget that we're driving toward Christ-likeness, that we have a great commission to carry out in this world, that we have sin to wage war against in our own souls, and we're just asleep. So thank you for rattling our cage today, and I pray for all of the believers in this room that we would have the courage to listen to you, Holy Spirit, and respond to what we've heard about our sin, that we need to drag it into the light and not leave it in the dark where it grows. I pray that we would be in community with other believers. It's easy to hide when you're by yourself and no one gets into your life, but we need to be together. And part of that togetherness needs to be exposing ourselves and talking about the sin that is nagging us or sometimes even destroying us. Let us be honest and courageous because we know that when we bring evil and wickedness out into the light of day, the light of your spirit that you crush it and you burn it up and you give us victory and you set us free. Help us to put off the deeds of darkness, our wickedness, and help us to put on you, Jesus, and walk as you walked. Our salvation is not just about taking us to heaven when we're done doing all the things that we want to do down here. Our salvation is for the purpose of conforming us to your image, God. So uh, burn out the dross, all the filth in our hearts and minds, and make us clean vessels that are holy and bring you glory. Because we know this time is short, and we want to magnify your name in everything that we do, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.